Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. There's already been a huge amount of publicity around the many, many Lance Armstrong-themed movies in production at the moment. The Armstrong Live by Alex Gibney looks particularly interesting. But a big thanks to Philippe Auclair for pointing us in the direction of a movie which, if produced in a certain way, Ken, could have even more intrigue than the Armstrong story. The film is called F2014. It'll be devoted to the history of FIFA, World Football's governing body, which celebrates its 110th anniversary, I think, in 2015, actually. And shooting is underway in Azerbaijan, according to an article on the Azer News website, which Philippe tweeted a link to. The only actor mentioned so far is Gerard Depardieu, who is uh, primed to take the role of Jules Rimet. FIFA president who organised the first World Cup in 1930. Well, I mean, is this is this going to be like a kind of a crime call reconstruction followed by documentary footage, or are they going to go all out and cast this entire movie as they should? I mean, a full Hollywood presentation, the whole. Oh, it's got to be Hollywood royalty involved. Yeah, with, uh, if you're thinking of major roles at Needfield, well, Havelanche, the president who popularised the World Cup yeah. during his reign, or well, maybe mo- didn't, it was quite popular already, but maybe modernised it and. Tried to make it a truly worldwide Maybe event. Maybe Rutger Hauer as Joao Avalanche. Rutger Hauer. Rutger Hauer. Yeah, yeah, okay. No, I can see that. You know, I mean, he's got the the sort of Aryan appearance. Yeah. Um, Isn't Joao Avalanche from Brazil, though? Yeah, but, you know, I think he's he's one of those Brazilians who, I don't want to say arrived in a U-boat, because uh, he, <laughs> he did compete for Brazil at the Olympics in 1936. But, right, okay. um, you know, a blonde-haired, uh, blue-eyed... Okay. Um, Brazilian. Um, maybe. Sepp, well, Sepp Blatter has to have a suitably charismatic lead man to play him. Well, maybe Christian Bale playing the young Sepp Blatter. <laughs> well, I was kind of thinking you could get Jonah Hill to put the weight back on. <laughs> uh, you know? There'd, there'd be Stanley Rouse, of course. You know who I think should be Stanley Rouse? Is Sam Neill basically transplanting the character that he plays in that TV show that was on recently? What's it called? Oh, I can't believe I can't remember it. No. Good pop culture reference, though. No. No, I, I, Birmingham. I, I, you know the one I'm talking about? Um, Killian. Um, Peaky Blinders. Mur- Peaky Blinders. Peaky Blinders. Killian Murphy's one. in it, and Tom Von Lawler, and Sam Neill playing uh, yeah, yeah, Flinty yeah. Ulsterman. But I who's Stanley Rice? Stanley Rice was the 
Englishman who was FIFA president he for was a, a period. English, uh, Sam Neill does a brilliant English accent. Don't worry about that. I love the Merchant Ivory movies. I can only assume that a fair chunk of this film will be focused on the agonising in the corridors of power at FIFA over whether or not Ireland should be given an extra yeah. place in the 2010. That should be about 20 minutes of the film. I so would say it's the emotional core of the entire Suggestions film. for an actor to play John Delaney, I'm going to throw Daniel Day-Lewis into the mix. I just think da- Daniel Day-Lewis could spend a year mm. literally in the shoes of John Delaney, if you can find those shoes, <laughs> and find out <laughs> well, what it's like off. to be John Delaney. Oh God. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Ryan Gosling? No? As John Delaney? Yeah. Ryan Gosling, maybe. He's got great hair. Has he, though? Maybe Ryan Reynolds has got better hair. Than Ryan, than, uh, than, uh, Ryan Gosling. That I, I Alex know. Gibney uh, movie does sound very interesting. It, Alex Gibney's a fairly. Uh, this is the Lance Armstrong. The yeah, so yeah. I just got back to that very prestigious um, US filmmaker who makes some pretty heavy duty documentaries. So for him to do what initially was going to be a film about the Armstrong comeback in 2009 was, and he said, he said this in conversation with Paul Kimmich last week in a really good piece in the Sunday Independent. Essentially, he was looking for a bit of light relief. I'll go to sport for some light relief. This seems like a real feel-good story. And then and it was pretty much ready to go. It was late enough on in the day that, first of all, the Landis email became public that he had sent to USA Cycling and to, the, uh, to USADA, whoever else that email went to. So at that point, Gibney was thinking, I think I have the chronology right here, was thinking, okay, we have to, might have to make some changes here. And then the more that happened, the more news that came out, he realized we have to make a new movie now mm. and interview Armstrong again and find out why he lied to me. Yeah, I think in one of the interviews he's wearing the same clothes as he was wearing in the really? old movie. He's kind of like, well, you know. Why did it, you lie to me, Lance? There was a, Get in line there, Alex. The, Alex Gibney says to Paul Kimmage in that interview um, that at some, at some point Armstrong said, well, the lie wasn't believable anymore. Just in, in quite a business-like way. You know, like, well, you know, what could... The what, lie had served its purpose. To do? Now we, I need a new... I mean... Uh, yes, we need we need we need to tell the truth here at all times. That's what we need to do. We had to change tax. So. We're going to talk to Adam Goods today. He was the captain of the Australian international rules team in 2010. He's back for the second test. He wasn't in for the first test, but he's flown over and he's part obviously of this indigenous team that the Aussies have sent. And that's mainly what we want to talk to him about. But a legendary player, Murph. Yeah, um, I mean, I think a, a lot of people. Well, I think. So many people have uh, emigrated to Australia and have gotten into Aussie rules while they're over there. But for those of us who haven't travelled to Australia, the the big thing that we would have uh, first seen, probably Ty Canelli winning the, the premiership uh, with the Sydney Swans. Well, Adam Goods is pretty much the best player on that Sydney Swans team. Uh, he's won two Brownlow medals, which is basically the Player of the Year award, best and fairest. Overall, um, the, the league's best yeah, player, yeah. And only 12 people have won the Brownlow medal more than once and Adam Goods is one of them. So you can safely say that he's in probably the top 15 or 20 players to have ever played uh, Australian rules. And to, this uh, idea of the ind- Indigenous rules or the Indigenous team coming over to, to take part in the International Rules Series, uh, he's been an unbelievably enthusiastic supporter of it along with uh, the coach Michael O'Loughlin, O'Loughlin who's actually a cousin of his as well. Um, so... When it comes to Aussie rules and comes to international rules, you probably don't get a whole lot bigger than, than Adam Goods. We'll be chatting to US Murph about this piece of sporting theatre. Yeah, so those are Mexican commentators who had been initially commentating on the 
their own country's game, of course, against Costa Rica. They had to win to be sure of getting into the playoff place for the last spot in the World Cup. They lost that game 2-1. As, the, as that match petered out, they turned their attention to USA against Panama, where Panama had been leading 2-1. But the USA turned it around, scored those two late goals, which is what we're hearing there, uh, which were enough to knock Panama out of the running and get Mexico back into the mix. So essentially, USA did Mexico a very, very big favour. Yeah, and uh, the commentary kind of went on after that. Uh, it's be- uh, So they've done the goal celebrations, the whole lot. It's because of the USA that we're being placed in the playoff. Because of them, not due to you, not any of you in the green shirts. It was them, not you. Remember this forever. <laughs> Keep this clearly in mind for the rest of your lives. You do nothing for the shirt. Do you, do n- you do not put the effort. You have not placed us in the playoffs. You have not placed us in the World Cup. You would not have kept us alive. <laughs> not you and your arrogance. Not you and your infamy. Not you and you, you morons, you punks. So, uh, By the way, that's not doing much for their confidence ahead of a two-legged no. qualifier against so, New Zealand. Yeah. The US oh, has, have surpassed us. They are better than Mexico at soccer. They even have the luxury of playing their subs and keeping us alive. I hope our coach wears the pants and resigns. He has failed as coach. <laughs> the pants. Yeah, I believe that maybe a yeah a literal translation of a rather um, ru- in poor taste Mexican phrase. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's pretty funny. All right. Yeah, listen, they they cared a hell of a lot about it. Brian will have a bit of fun with that, I'm sure. Billy Walsh uh, is going to be on talking about Joe Ward and Jason Quigley. They go into their semi-finals of the World Championships tomorrow. They that's Friday. They've both got medals as it stands, having won their quarterfinals yesterday. And uh, we'll chat a bit about that, but also about Billy himself and how he gets through these major championships. He had nine fighters starting out in these world championships, and I think six of them might have gotten within a fight of the medals. Five or six of them. It was a huge achievement. But something that strikes me anyway, Murph, I don't know if it does you as well, is when he when he, he goes into the ring, Olympics, world championships, and even the more sort of mundane events, uh, but the goes into these, particularly the big events, a fighter might lose. So he's got, say, Conlon there. Conlon's lost. He's walking out of the ring, consoling him, then dragging the next fella out. Yeah, okay, Joe Warren. So whatever about the fighters, they've all at least only got their own fight to focus on and the energy's required to do that. Billy Walsh has, is constantly up and down, and he must be. Now, the mask, he seems to have a sort of poker face going on. Mm. Never looks as though he's getting too wound up by anything, and he has to keep the head. But in, in his own mind, it must be difficult from time to time just to keep recalibrating. Yeah, and it, it's not even a case where he's coaching them before the fight and then once the fight begins... It's kind of in the fighter's hands. He has to be constantly coaching the boxer through every fight, uh, making sure that he's saying the right things in between uh, rounds. And to, to kind of to keep that up, it must be just be unbelievably draining for him. So that's, it is a, a very interesting kind of angle. We'll chat to him about that. First up, though, it's Adam Goods. I'm delighted to say joins us from Australia's Team Hotel in Dublin to chat about the second test and a lot of other um, issues. Adam, thanks very much for talking. First of all, you've flown in for the second test. I know you weren't around for the first game last weekend. It was a bad defeat, really, for you guys. How have you found the camp at the moment? Or is, is the mood okay? Yeah, the mood's good. Obviously, um, you know, your boys played really, really well on Saturday night and unfortunately I wasn't able to, to be there to support the boys. But yeah, the mood's grand. Um, they've really got a bit of a lesson, to be honest, on Saturday night and they know the areas of the game they need to work on and to to be frank, our boys didn't play to their normal standard that they would have done playing AFL. So we just got to get back to basics and, and really focus on giving a 100% effort. Yeah, I noticed afterwards that Michael O'Loughlin, your coach, he was quite, I would say, quite forthright in his criticism and his public criticism of the team. Now, oftentimes, 
we hear that you, you shouldn't criticise your players when you're a coach. But it seemed like he felt that he, he, as well as addressing it privately, he did feel that he had to, you know, just mention publicly that you have to play to a certain standard. Yeah, definitely. And uh, myself and Michael come from a, a football club with, with Ty Canelli where, you know, effort is something that we give week in and week out and, and that's what we expect and being coaches now and, and looking at those players that's what you expect from the players is to come out there train hard and then give it all on the weekend and unfortunately the boys didn't do that and, and, and Mick was in, in, in his right to, to give that feedback to the players publicly and in front of them because that effort wasn't um, wasn't anything that we expect. And Why not Adam? Why do you think the effort level wasn't right? Yeah I think maybe the practice match put them in a bit of false um, false sort of thinking how the game might pan out. I think the boys had a really good hit out. They played really well. They were able to do whatever they wanted with the ball and the way they were able to turn the ball over. So um, up against your class man um, on, on Saturday night, um, you know they just weren't able to, to match it, unfortunately. There was uh, an incident then during the week uh, that got publicity, a bit of... Uh bit of a knees up I guess you'd call it at the hotel I don't know if it's one of those things that was maybe blown out of proportion a bit but I know that again team management had to talk to the players about that has that is that a was that a major problem or is it something that maybe has gotten more publicity than it deserves yeah look it's definitely not a, a major problem um, it's something that you just hit on the head straight away and um, unfortunately yeah it was blown up um, a little bit more than what it should be but to be honest it, it's out there it's been done and um, we've moved on um, the boys have had a couple of really solid hit outs since then and you know, I know they're really keen to, to, to make amends for their performance on the weekend Is this, is it a case going in there to the second test on Saturday at Croke Park that you're just going out to win the match and you'd be happy with that it'd be a huge result or do you think the series is still there if a lot of things fail your way? I think we have a lot of respect for our opposition. They showed on the weekend that they can score quite easily if we don't put pressure on them. But on the inside here, you know, we're, we're quietly confident that if we get that effort from every player out in the ground for the whole four quarters, you know, we're a chance. Um, in the last quarter there, the boys got within eight points. We missed a couple of easy shots that could have got us a little bit closer and then your boys were able to kick it under and a couple of overs to blow it out to 22 points. So you can look at it so many different ways. We're trying to look at the positive way here. You guys are up by 22 points. Um, you know, if we get up, get off to a good start, anything can happen. And I think that's the best thing about the international series, mate, is that the teams are quite evenly balanced, even though you guys are going in with a 22-point lead. The fact this year, of course, that the team, the Australian team, it's an all-Indigenous side, you guys are out there representing your country and representing your culture. How big a deal is that for you? Yeah, it's massive. It's the first time uh, an AFL Indigenous team has ever travelled internationally to play on a big stage like this. So it's something that, you know, for us to come over here and share in your culture and the man, Ty Connelly, got up and did a presentation at Drummond Castle about the Irish history, and, and, and there's a lot of similarities there about um, you know the suppression of your people and the suppression of our people. Obviously, you guys had it for over 700 years, and um, we've only had it for only 200 years in Australia. So um, to, to, to see how both of our cultures have, have gotten through that, we've survived that, and we're still thriving with our own culture, I think is a really massive positive thing and something that we share in common and to, to be able to come out here and, and have a, a fantastic series and then hopefully be able to get you guys back in Australia 
to return the favour um, and show you a little bit of our Indigenous culture when the boys come back down, uh, down under, that would be a really, um, really pleasing thing. Yeah, has that uh, been a big part of your career as you kind of went through the grades and got to the point of playing for the Swans' first team for the first time and, you know, ultimately winning championships with them, being the best player there, you know, huge, huge big achievements. As a part of that, is it always, as far as you're concerned, that you're also representing Indigenous people, that you're, that that is kind of, uh, that that's a part of it for you as you're achieving these things? Um, look, I think... I am who I am, and a big part of who I am is being Indigenous, and I'm very proud of that. Um, I haven't always been. Um, I didn't grow up with my culture. I don't speak my language. Um, my mum was taken away from her family from a very young age, so we didn't grow up knowing what it's like to be Aboriginal. But after you know, doing a, a diploma in Indigenous studies and, and, and asking a lot of questions in my family, um, you know, I know where I come from, who I am, I have my identity and you know, I'm really starting to, to really buy back into my culture and what it is to be Aboriginal. Your mum, you say, was taken away at a young age. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, so unfortunately, um, you know, back in the 50s, we, the government had the power to take Indigenous kids away from their parents and put them into homes if they thought that the parents weren't looking after the kids properly. So that was the stolen generation. Um, and that was only back in the 50s when my mum was taken away when she was five. So um, that was law back then, and it's hard to believe that um, you're able to do that. But, mm. um, you know, it, it's something that happened to mum and uh, my aunties and uncles and something that they're constantly dealing with. But at the same time, you know, that's a big part of the reason why we don't have our language and, and don't have our culture. How has your mum dealt with that over the years? Yeah, look, it's tough, you know, and she brought up three boys um, pretty much by herself and, um, you know, it's a it's a day-to-day thing, but she's a very proud Indigenous woman and she's raised three really, really great sons who she's very, very proud of and she's a she's an absolute superior person in my eyes for, for her to go on her journey that she's been on and, and to be able to raise us kids the way she has. Um, she's a bit of a super mum in my eyes. Yeah, I think, Adam, that the AFL, and certainly sport in general, can be such a positive thing in this regard that, you know, that it, essentially the colour of somebody's skin or the culture or where they come from shouldn't be relevant, ideally. And I think I'm right in saying the AFL has been quite progressive in recent years in that regard. Definitely. And it's not just with um, racism, it's with... Um, you know how we treat women. It's 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 about how we um, treat kids at schools. It, we really see that AFL is really setting standards for the community. And and when you have good positive role models doing it um, on the weekend playing footy, but then doing it off field during the week, um, it just it just gives these kids real good positive role models to look up to. Attitudes can be hard to shake sometimes. I know you were there was an incident involving you in the Collingwood game this year. Do you mind talking to us about that? Look, it was um, unfortunately it was Indigenous Round, which is a, a whole round we have every year to celebrate um, Indigenous culture and the contribution that Aboriginal people have made to our game. And um, yeah, we were playing against Collingwood at the MCG, and unfortunately I heard a racist slur over the boundary line when I was very close to it, and uh, it saddened me to look over that it was a 13-year-old girl. So. Um, a lot of positive things have come out of that. Um, you know, a lot of conversations have happened since then, um, not just with me, but with other families. Um, got so much support from the community. Um, you know, parents writing in saying how they've had conversations with their young children about name calling and racism and um, the way that I dealt with it, um, how 
there was a positive message to come out of it. So in any situation, there's always a positive to come out, out of it. you just got to really try and focus on it and try and find it. Was it quite a shocking thing for you at the time to encounter? Yeah, it was. You know, I was, I was, I was quite upset. Um, I went to the bench and I didn't want to come back out. Um, I went straight to the rooms. Um, it's one of those things that sort of cut me down to my core um, and you know, it, it definitely took a long time to, to get over and as disappointing as it was, um, you know, talking about it has definitely helped and not just me but I think it's helped um, a lot of other people understand how it can be. Um, something so simple like that can really cut the cut to the core of someone. But you think that attitude, I mean, you, you, you say that you've tried to make sure the positives have come out. You've, you highlighted it. I think you stopped the game at the time. And since then, people, you, you're at least getting the conversation going again. Yeah, definitely. And, and, it, and it all has happened through sports. So um, I'm very grateful that what I do um, can be quite powerful. All right. Well, listen, Adam, we'll leave it there. It's um, been amazing to talk to you and we wish you well on the weekend. Thanks very much for taking the time. Thanks a lot, guys. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football. Available on irishtimes.com, Second Captains, and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. 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 Amazing to talk to Adam there. Really, when you have a chat with somebody so directly affected by that stolen generation in Australia, we talked to Rowan Connolly, an Australian journalist, last week about it. And of course, just when you, it's it's a shocking kind of a thing, anyway. But when you talk to somebody whose mother was actually part of that, it reminds you how recent, mm. how recent that period of uh, in Australia. Yeah, it's not was. A, it's not ancient history. It's not anything like it. Um, but I, I do think there is another thing that he that he mentioned there, and it's it's so blatantly clear that. Um, this chance to represent not just Australia but also their own indigenous culture, it is unbelievably important to the the Australian players that are over here at the moment. And also, judging by what Adam said there, important that they get a chance uh, to show the touring Irish team next year a bit of their culture when they're in Australia. That's obviously very important to them as well. Now, a lot of people are looking at this International Rules Series and thinking, right, well, maybe this is kind of on its last legs and will we see the sport again? From the point of view, from a purely economic point of view, which might be the thing really that, that ends this or, or keeps it going, mm. um, it's uh, the AFL, it's the touring party that takes on the, the cost of the tour. So it's not going to cost the AFL anything to host the series again next year. And judging by the, the sort of crowd that we're, that uh, the GA are expecting it on Saturday and that they got last Saturday in Cavan, it looks as if it's pretty much cost neutral. So I would say that there is pretty good chance that there's going to be a tour next year now whether there's another tour after that I think that's really the one that's up for debate but it, it looks like next year's tour is secure enough so from that point of view the the indigenous all-stars or the indigenous team that, that's over here now will probably well it looks more than likely that they'll get a chance to, to, to host Ireland next year Alright coming up at 6 o'clock tonight That's Yeah <laughs> They have asked for that really well, you can laugh. You can walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What yeah. did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. Okay. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you're showing me, man. <laughs> Second captain's football, Ken. 
Yeah, Kevin Caban is going to come in and talk to us. He's he's got a book out on. Yep. Um, so we're going to talk to him a little bit about that and um, you know various other issues. So looking forward to that. We're going to talk also about. Uh, Let's talk more about Kevin Caban. That's this is this is great. Yeah. I uh, read a piece by Paul Rowan in the Sunday Times with him. The book is really interesting. It seems that he kind of goes into some areas of. You just see, this is kind of ridiculous thing to say, but you see a guy like Kevin Caban, of course you don't know him particularly, but you think, yeah, he seems like a happy-go-lucky guy. I'm sure everything's fine in mm. his life. But then lots of stuff have happened to him. His dad, uh, through too much drink, I think, as a, as a kid, left the family home. He's recently separated himself. Uh, I know he struggled a bit with his mental health towards the end of his playing yeah, career. Yeah, he, he had depression towards the, like last yeah. year we're talking about. So there's, there's kind of a lot, there's a lot there behind simply talking about and there's also some very interesting stuff to talk about with regards to World Cup and all of that but I'm looking yeah. forward to having him in the studio. So uh, he's coming out and we're going to talk a bit about uh, El Clasico which is this, I've actually started using that phrase now. It's just become normalised. <laughs> Classico. Well, um, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's only natural. The marketing has worked. But was it's it the marketing? Accepted. Was is that a Sky marketing thing, or was it not it's always not called Sky specifically? But it is. It is a recent invention. I mean, is it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it used to be El Derby, yeah, but now it's um, were there or matches? El Derby, I think were there matches in take. Argentina that were classical? Yeah, it's, it's taken from the Boca, Boca and River. Uh, River or whatever. Play, yeah. That's the El Super Classico. Super Classico. Yeah, they had to upgrade it, which I attended, but. We don't need to talk about that right now. Kate. We certainly don't. And uh, we'll talk a bit about... That's Tresca why Murph's not involved and, later on. Yeah, yeah, too right, too. Okay. Uh, we are now joined by Biddy Walsh, Irish coach ahead of the semi-finals tomorrow. Jason Quigley and Joe Ward at the World Championships. Biddy, thanks very much for getting um, for giving us a few minutes. I know it's your rest day today. What does a rest day actually involve at the World Championships? Uh, well, I'm actually reviewing... Uh, our opponents for tomorrow's contest at the moment and we're going to sit down and go through the tactics for it and then we'll be doing a training session later on we have to make race in the morning so we do a light training session go over the tactics and uh, try and relax as much as possible yeah so not necessarily a huge amount of it. it's still it's still work I'm wondering just for you um, you know, when you're coaching these guys is it, is it actually a physically draining sort of tournament for you having so many involved this year absolutely absolutely it was just every evening we're back for Shattered here every night when we get back because you're not only you know, we had nine here, and we were fighting maybe as of yesterday, we had five contests in the ring, so we were fighting five fights ourselves outside the ring and yeah. preparing each for that. And, and then coming back from that, so you had the guys fighting the next day, so you were preparing them and training with them as you come back. And then between that, you're trying to fit a bit of food in and, and obviously trying to get a bit of sleep as well. Yeah, it's always struck us watching you, I think, when you've got so many boxers involved that. Just even for yourself, just trying to, if one fighter loses, for example, you then have to get into the right mindset yourself for the next guy. Is that something, do you yourself actually speak to people about how to get your mind right for that? Or is it just something that comes naturally to you? You're the coach, you have to, you know, you have to have the poker face at all times. Yeah, look, I think it's something that I'm aware of, very aware of, you know, I haven't been the boxer myself. And then, you know, we've, you know, we've got some, some really good highs and some very bad lows and some very bad lows, really good highs. And so, You've got to change as soon as you get into the changing room. Uh, you know, change immediately to what the tactics are for this guy and, and what his 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 demeanor is and what what type of character he is. You know, so I suppose a lot of the time we're we're actually uh, very good actors uh, becoming <laughs> as a coach. The uh, two medals are guaranteed now, of course, and hopefully we can go one better with the two or two better, I guess, with the lads tomorrow afternoon. But I, I think you said the two was your target coming into this, so you're happy enough. 
Yeah, Joe uh, seems to be, I mean, it's incredible, and this always gets said about him, I know, but that he's only 19 years of age and he's been through so much, he's had so many highs and he's even had some lows, a lot more than, uh, it's just so much has happened in his career already. He seems to be in a really good, really relaxed frame of mind at the moment. Yeah, look, he's had, he's had a, a desperate uh, past two years, really, as regards to uh, getting a bad decision, not qualifying for the big games and coming into the next major after that. Uh, it was the European Championships uh, where he would have been going in favours and in, in a freak accident, dislocates his knee in the first contest when he was winning uh, very, very easily. And uh, and then try to re- rehabilitate from that. And then when they got back, he injured his hand a bit. So he's had a, he's had a, you know, a fair struggle to get to where he is today. So I think the whole thing about it is that he's very, very happy to be able to be in there and to be competing at this level, uh, having been through so, so much adversity in the last six months in particular. Yeah, he certainly looks it. He looks quite relaxed. I guess he's quite relaxed outside of the ring at this tournament as well. He is, yeah. He's a lovely young man. Look, and, you know, people forget, you know, that this guy has been world champion at junior and youth level. You know, he's won major stuff as a young lad coming up. And now he's beginning to mature, even though he's still only 19. He's, he's beginning to mature as a man and he's realised what it takes to be a champion at, 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 at senior and adult, adult level and the conditioning that goes with that. So he's put in a lot of, lot of work uh, in the last, last since the big games uh, to get himself back up to this, this level and, you know, it's reaping, it's just rewarding them. Talk to us about Jason Quigley, Billy. We interviewed him a while back and he's got a great personality, as I'm sure you well know. Even, I noticed after the fight yesterday, after coming through his quarterfinal, he talked about this unbeaten record. He has, I think it's 31 unbeaten now at middleweight, which is a superb record. A lot of fighters, I think, maybe, or sportsmen generally, are a bit worried almost when they get to that kind of point because it has to end at some stage and it can sometimes become a noose or a negative thing. With him, he's saying, no, look, I just want to keep this going for as long as possible. He seems to have this great attitude to it. Absolutely, you know, and, and, and craving on that, the fact that he has been unbeaten and, and the known has come near him in that time, you know, he's, he has a fantastic international record and he has won three European gold medals, under 18, under 22, and now at senior this year. You know, which is the most difficult one, and, and he's become of age. And I've got look at the game. It's about the consistency and the hard work that he's put in. As he said himself last night on TV, you know, my life has been boxing. I dedicated my life to it, and he's receiving the, the rewards from that uh, with his performances and his dedication and the way he's developed himself technically, tactically, and obviously physically for this uh, world challenges. Just a word on one of the defeats yesterday. That was Paddy Barnes's defeat. Not so much that, but in the aftermath of it, he did mention that he was, I don't know if concussed is the right word, but uh, there was a, a clash of heads and a bit of an issue there. And he mentioned something about headgear in his tweets. Uh, is that, was that an issue for you? It was the lack, the, Did the lack of headgear contribute to his injuries? Yeah, look, you know, I boxed before, when, you know, before headgears, and then I was there when I hit him. I was in the first teams that would have used it at Olympic Games and what have you, so... Uh, you know, it's become part of our, our, our culture and part of our, our our dress codes. You know, up to up to now, and you know, 
the reasons why it was brought in was for safety reasons, and I don't realize why you know why you've taken it back out. It hasn't been any safer to take care of, you know. And we, what I've witnessed out here uh, over the past week, it's been a lot of lot of uh, eye cuts, injuries, and head injuries and, and hand injuries because of the lack of figure. So it was offering quite a bit of protection. But so we are where we are with us. Uh, yeah, Paddy was unfortunate. Had a couple of bad head clashes yesterday. Fell to the ground. I think his opponent fell to the ground and landed his knee on his head at the same time. So yeah, he was a bit shook and didn't know where he was for quite a bit in that contest. Where he actually was in good form and leading, I think at that point until that happened, and I think it sort of saw his covered his chances. Yeah, from what uh, as far as I'm aware now, the reasons for getting rid of the headgear are that actually con- concussion can be. Um, potentially minimised by taking the headgear off, which seems a bit counterintuitive, but uh, apparently that's the argument. You don't necessarily think, it, you, it sounds like you don't think it's a good thing, though. You think that the headgear should be there. Yeah, I'm not a medical person. From my viewpoint, as regards collides, you know, you've got to have a lot of luck to get through this tournament with six uh, contests in, in 10 days and that's get a cut or an injury around the head. Uh, so there's not a lot more luck involved uh, to get through it, and I think it was preventing cuts if nothing else. Yeah. Okay, well, listen, Billy, we wish you well for the, and we'll let you get back to the video work now and good luck in the two semi-finals tomorrow. Thanks for chatting. Appreciate it. Thank you. Just on that headgear issue, I, I was speaking to Johnny Watterson yesterday who's also over for the Irish Times and he was saying that as simply as possible, the medical reasoning for not having headguards is that it reduces, well, it's thought that it may reduce the impact of concussive punches. So if you take the punch on your skin, the skin then breaks and that takes the bulk of the effect as opposed to the brain taking it, which is the bigger issue. Now, I, I don't know that that's, and, and that's a very basic explanation that I'm trying to pass on, but uh, I don't know, it seems as though Billy Wall certainly doesn't understand why they've come back off. He fought while they had head, while they didn't have head guards, they then brought them in because it was seen this is the safe thing to do. Now, it seems to be, oh no, hang on, that's not the safe thing to do. The safe thing to do is to take the head guards back off again. Well, look, that happens all the time. I mean, in terms of um, the sort of science being updated, um, there was a time. Just when read the Daily Express every every day, basically. Uh, this <laughs> this is healthy for you. Oh no, wait, this gives you cancer. No, yeah. wait, no. When we said it gives you cancer two weeks ago, we actually meant it's really, really helpful for you. That's basically any food stuff yeah. that they've decided to look into. It's a fast changing thing, you know, health and, and science. I mean, I read the other day that baldness may be. Next to be cured. Go on. <laughs> no, I'm telling you. They, they managed to Should I lab. just leave the room here while you two guys discuss this? <laughs> they managed to lab to regrow what were thought to be dead, dead follicles, follicles. Yeah, and they brought them back to life. Hang on, it's not that just a hair it transplant. Is. No, no, no. A hair transplant is where they take working ones out of the back of your. I mean, not that I know too much about the details. Yeah, of yeah, it. No, I mean, I mean, it's not like you've Googled it. Nobody in this room has no. looked into this. It's not like you've got a Google alert for I mean, cures for bald. They remove a, a strip of skin from the sort of back. You know, this hair never falls out. The hair around the sides yeah. and the back never, it's, it's immune to falling no, out. my back hair in particular. Oh, you mean? On, on, the, on, your, on the head, the sides and back of the head. That, that hair doesn't fall out. It's just the, the hair on the top. Yeah. The, the front. Yeah. Uh, that, that falls <laughs> and a out. little bit around the side. So they take out, they take a strip off the back, essentially the back of your neck, pick out all the little hairs and then Bing, 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 bing. Put them into the um, sort of... The, the offending areas. Slightly light areas. But this is... An, what we're talking about here, Owen, is a miracle drug that they can literally... Like the, like the stuff Homer Simpson has. Demoxanil. Yeah. They, yeah. They say you can rub <laughs> it onto your scalp or maybe, I don't know, ingest it orally. And uh, a few days later, 
you know, you're back to the, the way things were, back in the saddle. Well, the very best to look at that. You, where what were we originally talking Doesn't about? Doesn't matter. Health, just health, just health. Just got excited by that particular. Time stuff. now for you, Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. We're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. He's out on his feet. Frank Cappuccino's going to let him keep going. Get it! Touchdown! Touchdown, 49! Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Brian, how are you this week? Good form, I hope. Things are great, boys. Things are great. Mid-October, late October, we got uh, football rolling. The 49ers in London, right near you guys, short flight away. And, of course, uh, you know me in the the World Series. The Fall Classic, they call it, boys. The Fall Classic. The 109th World Series underway. So, all is good by the bay. We wanted to catch up on a story from last week, Brian. It's um, not a particularly big sport in America, as we well know, but the American, the USA football slash soccer team uh, won a game, which wasn't a big deal. They were playing Panama. They would have been expected to win anyway. They've qualified for the World Cup. But in the process of winning that game, they did their big rivals, Mexico, a bit of a, more than a bit of a favor. They rescued Mexico's hide here. What a story, and you're right. It's not usually uh, a huge talking point, but it's getting more so. Even in the time you and I uh, have been doing shows together, even in the last five years, soccer slash football has gotten more popular. And, and you're right, an event like this USA-Panama game got more attention than certainly it would have 10, definitely more than 20 years ago. And the catch is, we're not bad. USA Soccer, not bad at all. We've already clinched our spot in 2014 World Cup uh, Soccer. And Jurgen Klinsmann, you guys all know uh, him from his days in Germany. And, uh, and he is, of course, our coach now, as people know. So the deal is we've already clinched the World Cup. I say we, right, the U.S., um, already clinched it. And here comes this match against Panama. Now, it doesn't get more obscure, I'm sure, for the European football fan than U.S.-Panama qualifier. But there's an excellent subplot to this, and that is that Mexico has been struggling mightily. And I don't know if you guys have been talking about that, if that's a talking point over there. But Mexico, a very proud soccer nation. And, guys, this gets into a really, really dicey uh, dynamic, and that is the Mexico-U.S. soccer rivalry. In that Mexico, obviously, it's their number one sport by a mile. It's the sport they take all their pride and identity from. And we've all discussed where soccer ranks on the U.S. ladder, quite low down the ladder. And for the U.S. to start messing with Mexico, we beat them fairly regularly now, which infuriates the Mexicans to no end. And in fact, you could even make an argument that Mexican fans have, have resorted to uh, some would say uh, less than uh, high highbrow tactics when the the Americans go to Mexico City. The vulgarities and the and the uh, and the things that are thrown at the U.S. players are really kind of shocking to American fans because when Mexico comes to the U.S., we either a don't really pay attention or b they're supported mostly by Mexican Americans who are living in America. So uh, they hate us. They hate us, and we had a chance to lose to Panama and knock Mexico out of the cup. And not only did we beat Panama. Not only did we save Mexico's hide, but we did it by scoring two goals in stoppage time, like a 
stunning win with mostly backup players, too. So it was a huge uh, talking point, obviously, between Mexico and the U.S. And what's really funny is Mexico, which hates us with their very fiber of their being, went on this whole We Love America uh, uh, PR campaign on Twitter, on social media. Uh, Gracias, uh, Tio Sam. They were saying, thank you, Uncle Sam. Thank you, America. God bless America. You know, it's so funny. Now, now they love us. Of course, they still have to play a home-and-home home with New Zealand to get in. But the very fact that we scored two goals, Panama, if they had held on to a 2-1 to lead in the 90th minute, would have advanced to the World Cup. Mexico out. Instead, we score the two goals. And I, to be honest, guys, wrapping up, we're sort of wondering, as sports fans over here, should we have done that? Should we have <laughs> scored those goals? Shouldn't we have just, like... You know, come on. you got to screw your rival over. I can't believe we gave them new lives. I would have been in favor of tanking it for Mexico. But Klinsman himself said the object of sport is to win, and he was proud of his team. So pretty juicy topic. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm trying to think of examples along those lines. Maybe 95, the Premier League. Manchester United were playing on the last day of the season, hoping to win the title. Blackburn Rovers were playing, hoping to win the title. Now, Blackburn were playing against Liverpool. So big rivals of Man United. So people just thought, <laughs> Liverpool aren't going to try a leg in this game. But as it turns out, now Blackburn won the league in the end anyway but Liverpool I think got a draw that day if I remember correctly I think maybe professionalism in these cases tends to override any any of the more external factors and also those USA soccer players you know if they go and lose to Panama it's kind of embarrassing for them or certainly it's a bad result for them and it won't help the guys on the pitch get into Klinsman's team for the World Cup very true, very true. You know, you're right. I mean, when I, when I said we should have tanked it, that's totally a case of... Um, what fans think. You know, yeah, disgraceful yeah, behavior, you know, Brad, really. You do, <laughs> if we're being honest. You're doing, yeah. the, you're doing the emotional thing, you know, uh, of like, it, it's just kind of fun. But you're right. I mean, of course, Klinsman wants to see these guys perform. He wants to see these guys play. And like I said, he said the object of sport is to win, you know. And, and if you're Panama... You should be thinking, why didn't we just play better defense? Why did we not, you know, let this happen? I mean, there's definitely ways to look at it. So I guess in some ways, guys, it's a real strong statement for the state of American soccer in that we are in a position where we're, A, clinched way ahead of Mexico, B, where we're kind of the power brokers now in the North American, Central American corridor, where we're just, you know, we're sort of like, it's, it's how we play determines who gets in, which is pretty impressive considering the state of American soccer 25 years ago to today. So, I mean, of course, when you look at it rationally, you should say, you know, always play to win, always give your best, don't lose to Panama, you know, continue to build that winning mentality for American soccer. Guys, kind of quietly, there's like, there's kind of quietly, there's like a little bit of hope attached to this USA team going down to Brazil. I mean, I know that the great sporting nations, the great soccer nations of Germany and Brazil and Italy and Argentina, they're laughing at us, I'm sure, uh, when we take the pitch against them. But I think, there's a, I think there's a little bit of hope attached to these guys. We're getting better. And, you know, we're getting more competitive on a world stage. Klinsman wants to be a top 10 football nation in the world, which is, um, you know, hey, you, you, first you've got to set the goal and get there, and they're not that far off. Brian, off the field, uh, what, what, is, what's the state of play in the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico? I'm talking sort of politically and with regards to immigration. Uh, you want to talk about what's going on off the field? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, it's a very charged topic, obviously. It's a huge topic in Washington, D.C. It's kind of a topic that's either going to it's going to make or break you, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Uh, the Democrats have been agitating for immigration reform for years. Immigration has become a huge, huge topic over here because 
there is a huge influx of uh, immigrants from Central America and Mexico that have taken over, especially in California. And, th- you know, there's a lot of talk of giving them amnesty and kind of just starting anew and letting these kids get citizenship and or go to college and or get medical services. But there is a large segment of the right writer wing of the spectrum that says, no, 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 absolutely not. You know, all the immigrants that have gone have come in here illegally through the years, whether they point to many European immigrants or Asian immigrants, for that matter, who, you know, who, who do it the right way, quote unquote, doing it legally. So it's a huge thing. But guys, even some Republicans like George W. Bush uh, from Texas, who, who has in his career, despite you know, being thought of as this incredible right-wing cowboy, has through his career shown a, uh, a friendliness towards the Mexican uh, situation. He proposed immigration reform, got shot down by his own party. John McCain's another guy you'd think of as kind of a right-wing sort of guy who would be America first, America first. He's very friendly towards the Mexican immigrant situation. He, too, getting shut down by his party. So that's actually a big topic for Obama in the remaining years he has, if he can ever get his uh, health care website fixed, uh, to, uh, to tackle immigration reform. In fact, he said that that's one of the most important things he's going to try to try to attack in the next couple of years. So, yeah, that adds to the whole dynamic of the Mexico-U.S. rivalry, because you have people who react to the very concept of Mexican immigration to, to America played out on the sporting pitch, you know, so it's like, it is an interesting dynamic. Now, I live in California, which is an extremely, it is the, probably the number one, I'd say us in Texas would be the number one states that understand the deal, just kind of like, it's here, it's reality. The the Central American and Mexican immigration is a is a fact of life, and, you know, you better be able to speak Spanish as well as you speak English, because you're going you're gonna to use it almost every day of your life. So it is a, it's a hot, hot topic. Yeah, and um, I, I presume then that uh, when uh, the U.S. and Mexico play each other, particularly in the U.S., that when you there are Mexican uh, Mexican Americans at the game shouting for Mexico, that it's probably more than just sort of a, a sporting decision that they're making, but it's also in some respects a political action that they're that they're taking in a situation like that where America is where they are now, but they're still shouting obviously for the the Mexican team. Yeah, no question, and that, and that's, that has rankled some American fans a lot. In fact, American fan support, in, even again, really kind of reemphasizing the theme of just real recent history, has gotten much stronger, much stronger. And there were times, I remember, so I'm going to say it was the 1990s, the U.S. had a game against Mexico at the Rose Bowl, and it, which is down in Los Angeles. And uh, guys, probably, I mean, I may be exaggerating, I may not, 90%. Mexican crowd in Los Angeles, California, right. the United States of America. I mean, it was stunning. And I think that's done a couple of things. One, I think it inspired the, the, the American fans uh, to kind of woke them up a little bit to say, wow, this is what's going on. We're, 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 a ro- we're an away team, even in our own home soil. So it really ratcheted up the rivalry to see how strong Mexico came. It's almost like an analogy of like, you know, when just two sporting teams play in the U.S., like the Boston Red Sox, who are in the World Series now, their fan base is so strong. They travel so well that they'll show up at any stadium around the country and out-cheer the home team. And that annoys the home team so much. It happens to the Oakland A's here in the Bay Area, and they get so angry. They hate the Red Sox so much as a result. And that's kind of what's happened with Mexico-U.S. So the Mexican fans that come, of course you have a pride. It's the same reason, guys, I cheer for Ireland and Italy in the, in the World Cup primarily because historically my U.S. team is out early and they're not even in it. I know, unfortunately, the boys in green 
won't be going to Brazil right no. this year. Yeah, no. I think you better start cheering that. for the U.S. soccer team. Here, guess what, guys? <laughs> I'm, looks like my, I'm going to be putting on the blue jersey again, my Azuro, my Azuri jersey. Pardon me. Uh, I'm going to be going to Azuri once the U.S. gets eliminated. But, yeah, of course, we're all, you know, in America, we're a country of immigrants. And I know it's hard for you guys to understand that. And I know when Americans come over to Ireland, there's a lot of eye rolling when everybody says, hey, my name's Sullivan. Hey, my name's O'Connor. You know, and you guys all kind of smile and grin and bear it. And then you mutter when you walk away. <laughs> I know. I've been there. I've experienced it. So, uh, never, but right, it, never. <laughs> never, right? Never. Uh, but we're a country of immigrants. And these Mexicans that are even here legally, of course, they're going to cheer for Mexico because it's their home. It's their grandparents, their great grandparents, et cetera. So the, uh, the immigrant dynamic is an unusual thing in America, specifically to the Mexican ex- immigrant experience in California. So they're, they're cheering for politics. They're cheering for home. They're cheering because we're neighboring countries. I mean, you drive to San Diego. If, you, if you're in San Diego, you just take a five-minute drive. You're in Mexico, you know, and all of a sudden everything changes. So uh, it's a strong, strong dynamic. I, I, I'd be interested to see if, you know, Mexico even gets through this, this home-and-home with New Zealand and makes it to the World Cup. Maybe we'll play them again in a match and, and restart the rivalry all over again. Yeah, it sounds, Brian, like um, the, you're suggesting, though, that maybe the, the days of um, a match in L.A. Uh, attracting 90% Mexican fans or whatever it might be are are kind of over. That's obviously the Me- Mexican passion for football, for soccer, hasn't dimmed at all, but that there are more Americans actually getting into it now on a fairly, on a fairly passionate basis. Yeah, I think there's two things. Okay, one, you're right. I, I would still say this, though. Like a Red Sox fan base or like a Pittsburgh Steelers fan base, you're not going to deny the Mexican fan base. They're still going to out-cheer the U.S. in Los Angeles or San Diego or, the, or California. But I think what we've done is a very smart thing. We've scheduled these games now away from Los Angeles. And I know famously you guys saw a game where we played in Columbus, Ohio, which, of course, is in the, you know, the northeast Midwest corridor of the U.S., in a wintry climate, we played Costa Rica. I know you guys must have seen the highlights when the snow came. Mm, yeah, and we kept yeah. playing. That's how you counter. That's how you make the the Mexican and Central American teams uncomfortable. Put them in snow. They don't like that. So we we're not playing those games down in L.A. as much because it's not that much of an advantage to play there. Now it's an advantage to play. In Columbus, Ohio, it's an advantage to play guys in the new capital of soccer in America. And I think we've talked about this on the show once before, and that's Seattle. Seattle, Washington, not just a beautiful city to visit, but an amazing soccer city with an incredible fan support. And, in fact, they sell out as many fans for the Seattle Sounders Major League Soccer games as they get for the Seattle Seahawks NFL football games. So that that is that's a one-off. That's the only city in America where it's like that. Although Columbus is also very strong too, and Colorado is good too. But Seattle, really. So what our deal is is don't play in Los Angeles. Don't don't give yourself a disadvantage. Make the Mexicans go to Ohio. Make the Mexicans go to Seattle, Washington, and that's where we actually have, believe it or not, a true home field advantage. Uh, you mentioned, Brian, that the 49ers are quite are much closer to us than they are to you this weekend. They're playing over in London. The supporters who are travelling over from Ireland, I'm sure there'll be quite a few. Um, should they expect a classic? <laughs> if you mean like a classically forgettable game, uh, yeah. That, I mean, this is like on paper, this is not a winner. I don't mean to diminish the fun of everybody who's throwing on their Joe Montana and Colin Kaepernick jerseys and heading on over 
Uh, what about Steve Young? You're always airbrushing Steve Young out of history, yeah, I Brian. Am. You're right. One I'm man crusade to get rid of Steve Young from. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe you know, not. like in the Soviet history books, when yeah. a dictator goes away and they just like erase him from the book. No, I love Steve Young, but he's not Joe. Come on. Uh, so yeah, you can throw on your eight jersey if you want, but if you're going to put on an eight jersey, you might as well just. You go whole hog and put on the 16, Joe Montana. Come on. So with much respect to Steve, but more respect to Joe, put on your Joe jersey or your Kaepernick jersey, number seven, and head on over. You're not going to see a classic. The Jaguars are an absolute abomination, an atrocity, the worst team in the NFL by a good margin. They can't move the ball at all. They have no offense whatsoever. Their quarterback situation is a disaster between this guy Chad Henney and Blaine Gabbert. They're nobodies. The, the, the 49ers should win this game handily, and they should win it kind of in the first half. But that doesn't mean people can't go over and cheer, see Kaepernick, see Harbaugh in the black sweatshirt and the khakis. We had actually a very entertaining chat with Harbaugh this week. Oh, yeah? I don't know, something about being in the U.K. that loosened him up or something about winning four games in a row, which is what they've done all by double-digit margins, which is what they've done, has loosened him up. So he was making jokes about being uh, the Chevy Chase Clark Griswold dad figure as he shepherds his team around London to see the sights. He likened himself to a Clark Griswold in, in vacation uh, as he would take his guys around. He's also a huge Winston Churchill fan, quoting Churchill. He wants to go to 10 Downing Street and see some war, uh, war rooms where Churchill met. So he's, uh, he's all excited, and plus he's excited because he's winning. So go over, see the khakis, the black sweatshirt, see Kaepernick in action, but you know, you'll probably see a nice, smooth, easy 49ers win. So all Harbaugh needed was a junket to yeah, get loosen nice him up relaxed, a little. Loosen him up. I was going to say holiday, but he's doing a bit of work, so we'll leave it at that. Well, Listen, yeah. Holiday Road is the song they play in vacation, right? So that's what he just imagine that playing as he's game planning in the office, all right? Brian, thanks so much. Take care. All the best, guys. I was reading some of Jurgen Klinsmann quotes after that USA victory mm. in Panama. And it was kind of interesting. The experience in Panama City was beyond imagination. There's a whole country feeling that they've almost qualified. You're right there for the first time, as in they're right there in the, for the first time in their history. And then with our goal, basically, you just silence an entire stadium, an entire nation dreaming about the World Cup. It was a shock to us as well. <laughs> oh, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> back back to on. the USA we go. <laughs> That's not for, it's not very nice, is it? Well, I mean, I suppose... Back to our affluent, um, now qualified for the World Cup lives yeah, in the USA. He's probably trying to, you know, empathise. No, I, it, I wasn't. I'm not slagging yeah, off. These were quite interesting. You're the one who started be, being cynical about it, and now I've just followed your train of thought. Yeah, I'm, I'm, no, there's, there's empathy there, but there's also rubbing it in a little as well, by accident. You like that story, though, Ken? Yeah, brilliant. Um, well, it's I it's hope Mexico that, qualify for the World Cup. I mean, I'll, they're, they're I'll generally be, a team you kind of like seeing. They're one of those high-quality South American teams who make the World Cup. Mexico and the World Cup are always... They have a famous quote, and I... And it's, I think it's actually used in other South American countries, but I always remember a Mexican fan saying it to me in the in Leipzig after they lost to Argentina in 2006. And he said, Mexico play like never, but we lose like always. <laughs> and uh, that's what they think, you know. They always, uh, they always lose. So I'm putting too much store on, what was his name? The guy who scored against, two goals against us? Uh, Luis, Luis Garcia. Garcia. Garcia oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> sure. it's really good comedy. Stop scoring, Luis Garcia! Yeah. <laughs> Stop smacking the ball into our net from twenty yards. Oh, there's the Hugo Sanchez bicycle kick from 1986 in the World Cup. Wasn't Hugo oh, Sanchez? T- t- 2006 World Cup. 
No, it was Maxi Rodriguez who scored the Maxi great Rodriguez. goal. Maxi Rodriguez, yeah, no, sorry, I've, I've, I was moving on to that in my head while just shouting out world. They're not great goal scorers, but they're a the scorer two. of great goals. Great goals, yeah. And they, they lost to Argentina again in a really unfair, it was one of those, Tevez scored an offside goal and everybody in the stadium could see it was offside because they kept showing it on the screen. And the Mexican players said, oh, look yeah. at the screen! And then the officials are just, you know, pretending not to look at the screen and saying, we have to give the goal. So uh, it's pretty <laughs> in, in robot voices. Yeah, well, what other voice can you use in that situation? You know, I mean, it's difficult mm-hmm. to affect a natural tone while you're telling them that if going any of the, the players ask you what what the hell we just did, just adopt the Ivan Drago voice. <laughs> spread it, spread it to your mates. Yeah, that's not great. Get some emails in from Murph. You'll take some P Bezos, I'm sure, for next week. Second captains at irishtimes.com. I'll put the call out on Twitter as well. But yes, uh, very, very much re-energized P Bezos this week. I want to keep that energy those energy levels high for next week Twitter at Second Captains you can follow us facebook.com forward slash Second Captains check us out there as well thanks very much Murph thank you Owen thanks Ken thank you Owen thanks Ken thank you Carl. thanks for listening take care that's the second time it's gone off they never go home they never go home they never go home those, those, those boys 